You're listening to Inside the Village, where all news is local and no topic is off limits. So help me, Bob, it's Bully in the Alley. Welcome to Inside the Village for Wednesday, February the 14th. 2024. I'm Scott Sexsmith, alongside Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media, Derek Turner, Executive Producer of the show is here as well, and uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, love is in the air. Love is, it's always love in the air down here. Every, it's like a love fest. Day, I love you, buddy. I love you too, man. Right. Derek, we love you. That's enough. I read the All script. Right. Okay, along. that's it. <laughs> enough of that. Uh, some interesting Valentine's Day facts. Oh. Are you ready for when this? You, when you hold your phone like this and put your... It's serious. <laughs> 25% of pet owners give Valentine's Day gifts to their pets. No, they don't. It's not wrong. Like what? Like a I don't know. I don't have a pet. You, is it on your, the internet? No, it's there not you're there. Looking at? But I'm sure you could find that out. You, that's good. Uh, how many uh, cards do you think are exchanged each year? Any guesses? In the world? In the world. 10 million? That is not correct. The answer is 145 million cards are exchanged each year. Over, and this was astounding to me, 58 million pounds of chocolate and candy purchased yearly. And who do you think gets the most Valentine's Day cards? I don't know. I think husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. The boss? The boss. Good answer. Not wrong. Not wrong? Not right. (laughs) Teachers. Ah, teachers. They have it made. Christmas, Valentine's Day. When you think about it, especially in the younger grades, remember you... Teachers used to make Valentine's Day cards mm-hmm. with us in class. Mm-hmm. So multiply that by the number of classes that any teacher could have. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I see. So you're, I see what you're saying. Yeah. All right. So if you've been a teacher for 35 years and teaching grade four and you've done Valentine's every year, it's a lot of Valentine's. It's a lot of Valentine's. And for the record, lovebirds are actually birds. Yes. For the record, too, I did not send you a Valentine or Derek, even uh, though I thought about sending Derek one. Well, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> okay, uh, big show today. We're going to talk about affordable housing uh, in uh, southern Ontario, specifically uh, Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo region. Before we do that, the first word to first go, uh, and the story of uh, international students just simply will not go away. Inside the Village is, uh, is, is on the radar this week. So as everyone remembers, we had Sioux College President David Orzetti in here. It was our second conversation with somebody about the international student cap that the federal government announced. And uh, what uh, David talked, it was a pretty detailed, long conversation. But what he did say, he got into the discussion about bad actors, right? Because the federal government's trying to crack down on bad actors. Right. The, 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 the colleges that are maybe not playing by the rules as much as they could. He's, he called out, he said there are institutions that the government knows about that are both public and private that are the bad actors. And he specifically mentioned Conestoga College uh, and called them out for what he said was some, you know, uh, some practices that he wouldn't he wouldn't endorse. He specifically said that they brought 30 some odd thousand students to that community and it's overwhelmed the the housing there. Uh, And he basically called them out. He was pretty blunt about the fact that he considers them one of the bad actors. Um, Last night or yesterday afternoon, uh, the president of Conestoga College had a press conference or had some kind of event, public event, and uh, had some harsh words for Mr. Orzetti. Well, you want to talk about being blunt Here's what John Tibbetts, uh, the president of Conestoga College, said last night, and I am quoting here. Like Orizetti, why are his goddamn students in Toronto? Why not up there? Talk about a whore. I mean, he's taking a percentage of the profits of an operation. 
And I can't stand the guy, by the way. Yeah, he did. End quote. He <laughs> minced no words. He minced no words. And, and just to be clear, what he's uh, – or is Eddie saying, called them out for, for what Heath said was way too many students. They, they bring in thousands and thousands. And now he's saying, well, what about Sioux College's private par- – the partnership with a private college, two private colleges down in the GTA. Right. And he's saying, well, you're getting a, you're getting a percentage of the profits off those. Why are you doing that? Why don't you just focus on your school in northern Ontario? So a lot of a lot of – <laughs> arguing going on, and it's it just shows the emotion that and 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 the concern on, 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 at these colleges and universities about this new cap. Right, international students are a major source of revenue for schools all over the country. They know they're going to lose some of that revenue, and I think it's starting to boil over. Um, but uh, yeah, so interesting though to see that someone's uh, that our, our our conversation could trigger such a heated argument. See, people do watch. They sure do. Important I, people. Yeah, absolutely. And and you and I are just going to sit back and watch this unfold, <laughs> but the uh, ball clearly now is in uh, David Orzetti's court. All right, let's uh, move on to Guelph and Isabel Buckmaster's story on a Jane Doe in that city. Yeah, this is one of those stories that we talk about as a news team a lot when we chat about the way we cover stories and the stories we pursue. We often there's things in our community that we just kind of take for granted. We drive by all the time or we know it's there and people kind of know what it is and know what the story is, but they don't really know. And Isabel does a great job of, of sort of digging into one of those stories in her community. Um, I guess there's a, uh, there's a memorial to a Jane Doe um, on a highway seven rest stop just outside Rockwood, Ontario. And it was uh, the remains of somebody unknown between the ages of 25 and 45. They were found there almost 20 years ago. And there was a memorial set up and, and to try, try to keep this case alive because they still don't know who this person is all these years later. And it's a story of about a, a gentleman who quietly does the work of maintaining this memorial. Mm-hmm. And so Isabel goes there, talks to him and, and, and it tracks him down and, and gets him to explain why he's invested in this, why he does this. And it's a beautiful story. And it's, and it's, and again, it's, we cover breaking news all the time, but it's more than that. This is a story just about something that everybody who's reading this story say, oh, I go by there all the time as I've seen that, that rest stop. And now they know the full story behind it. And uh, it's a great little piece of journalism and it's a super good story. All right. And uh, finally, to the uh, city of Sudbury, it was January 27th that uh, Councillor Michael Vanini was uh, declared missing. And sadly, yesterday he was discovered uh, dead. Yeah, sad news. It broke late in the. I think it broke in the late afternoon, but it was yeah. up on our sites shortly thereafter. And you know, we've seen this so many times. As a journalist, you cover these stories that evolve over a few weeks, and and you know, a lot of suspicion was that obviously he'd met a terrible end because he'd been missing for so long, no mm-hmm. sign of him. And of, of course, they did find his body. Um, they don't suspect foul play. That's what the police are saying. It's a sad ending, though. You always kind of hold out hope that uh, that there'll be some miracle and that they'll turn up somewhere and be okay. Um, that said, I have to give credit to our team in Sudbury, which I may have mentioned already on the show, but uh, our team in Sudbury under editor Mark Gentili really did a great job of, of going after this story every day, whether it was reaching out to police, reaching out to family, reaching out to people who knew them. They knew that it was the thing in Sudbury that everyone was interested in, so they kept it in the news every day. They made sure to update people. Even if there wasn't much to say, they let people know that, right? Um, And, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, obviously family and friends are hoping for a happier ending, but at the same time, at least it gives some sense of an answer of what happened here. Yeah. Okay, uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about affordable housing uh, in the uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, Cambridge area, and a unique idea that uh, seems to be gaining some traction. Uh, Scott Hamilton, uh, Cambridge City Councilor, we've had on the show uh, previously, uh, and Brian Doucette uh, from the University of Waterloo uh, going to be joining us. Uh, but it really is an interesting concept when you think about it. Yeah, I hadn't really heard about this till recently, but basically it's an idea that's kind of gaining steam in southern Ontario in some communities where 
the idea is to use municipal parking lots and build on top of those lots, but keep the lot. Right. So housing over parking, basically. And there's some 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 drawings that have been put out there by some architecture firms saying what this could look like. The idea being that uh, it's the best of both worlds. It's the municipality keeps their, their their parking spots, but there's a place to build some of this affordable housing. Uh, and I, from what I understand, it's a couple of communities are looking into it. And I believe the Guelph mayor uh, talked about having wanting to do it there. So it's kind of a story, an idea gaining steam, really interesting. So we're going to have a chat about it and here. I'll figure out what it is. All right. Think of apartments on stilts. Yes. That might be the best way to describe it. That's right. Uh, Scott Hamilton and Brian Doucette join us next when Inside the Village returns right after this. Reporters, editors, and journalists who go the extra mile to get the story and get it right. Go behind the scenes with those who cover the stories that matter most to you and your community. Look for it in the Village Features section of your favorite Village Media website across Ontario. Back on Inside the Village with Michael Friscalani, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media. I'm Scott Sexsmith. Uh, excited to have on the show with us, uh, first of all, return guest, uh, Cambridge City Councillor Scott Hamilton and Brian Doucette. Brian is a uh, Canada Research Chair and Associate Prof at uh, the University of Waterloo. Uh, thanks to both of you. Good to see you both. Thanks so much for having us. Really appreciate it. Uh, let's uh, talk about this uh, this new concept called housing over parking. Scott, I'd like to start with you if we can. What is it? Well, the idea had been bantered around the city of Cambridge for a few years by various uh, community groups. And we were finally just experiencing such a, a housing crisis in Cambridge. Um, Cambridge is in Waterloo region. We have over 8,000 people on the waiting list for affordable housing. There are 6,000 families, 1,500 families alone. And the wait list for housing in Cambridge is well over seven years. Wow. And so a recent report yeah. by the United Way came out and said if municipalities want to tackle the housing crisis effectively, what they can do is make surplus lands and assets available for housing. And so an issue with housing is, well, where are you going to get the land? You can't just pull it out of thin air. So what a city asset is that could be available land is a municipal parking lot. Every city has municipal parking lots. They're controlled by the city, and many of them are underutilized where the parking really isn't used for much of the day. So why not take that parking lot, put in affordable housing that's on pillars, so it's off the ground. You can keep the spots below for that parking that's utilized for the downtown core because the lot is never full. You're saving the spaces, and because you're not going underground, you actually save a lot of the construction costs, you expedite the time, and because that housing is controlled by the city, it's on municipal land, the city can control the type of rent, the type of ownership, the type of affordable housing that's put in that space going forward. It's super interesting. I hadn't heard of that idea until I read it on Cambridge Today. Uh, Brian, is this an idea that's been out there for a while? The idea of, of using public land and using city land to, to build the kind of housing that the market is unwilling or unable to build We've had a very good track record of doing that 40, 50 years ago. Um, there's good examples in Toronto, such as uh, the St. Lawrence neighborhood, which was built on uh, formerly CN land. So when CN was still a crown corporation, still today, I think one of the, the most innovative and most important neighborhoods in all of Canada, significant non-market housing component and built on public land. We've forgotten over the last few decades that we can actually do this. You know, what Scott has illustrated, like you retain ownership of the land, you set the rules. We've kind of forgot that that is a successful way of developing the kind of housing that, that communities need. Mm -hmm. We often defer to the private market. And so much of the housing talk today is about building more market-based supply. And 
more supply is needed, but we really need to think about what kind of housing we build and for whom. And municipalities, you know, let's be frank, they don't have a whole lot of money to put towards affordable housing. That has to come from higher levels of government, from provincial and federal funding to, to, to construct affordable and deeply affordable housing. What municipalities do have is land. And that is what they can bring to the table in this affordable housing discussion and keep that land in public ownership and use it to build the stuff the market isn't building. So without simplifying this, and and either one of you can jump in, does this not seem like the best of both worlds? There's a lot to like about this. Um, On the one hand, if we take a sort of bigger city building picture, I mean, one of the worst things that you can have to create a vibrant, thriving urban area is acres and acres of surface parking lots. (laughs) So if you can repurpose that land to build housing, to build communities, to build populations that will support local businesses. I mean, that is win-win. Sometimes the parking lots can stay, but it's not a requirement. You know, we have a lot of parking in our communities. When it comes to actually developing housing, again, there's housing and there's housing. There's what the market is building, which isn't affordable to a lot of households. So if the market isn't going to do it, you've got to find the spaces that you can. And public land is the, the... the only spot really where you're going to get significant housing of that kind. And if I can jump in, um, it's really, it's not just a win-win, it's a win-win-win. Because on the one hand, cities need intensification. They need density in urban cores. Businesses need people living nearby because if people get into their cars, they're not going to drive for two minutes to get down to Main Street. They're going to drive out to Walmart or Costco. And the third is actually utilizing what is prime real estate in an urban core that is empty for the majority of its existence. So many people that have been in favor of this have said, well, that lot down the street is packed 24-7. Maybe don't use that one. Walk two blocks up the street and it's a concrete wasteland. Prime urban space where you could have housing, keep the majority of the parking, and all of a sudden you've created the potential for walkable neighborhoods, for public transit to be utilized more effectively for placemaking activities to occur. Safety goes up because you have more people walking on the streets that are living in a community. Local businesses have their, 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 um, their bottom line improved because you have more people walking throughout the neighborhoods. And so the support for this has come from every single corner of the community. It's been unprecedented for me as a city councilor. So church groups, academics, such as Dr. Desette, business leaders, BIAs, uh, the average citizen and nonprofits have just come out of the woodwork to say this really has some legs to it. No pun intended. It's an idea <laughs> worth exploring. Some stilts to it, as you say, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's great to hear all, all the positivity and all, all the people coming forward thinking it's a great idea. How did it work go at city council when you brought the motion? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's the elephant in the room, I guess. Uh, despite despite all the support from all those sectors, unfortunately, it didn't pass at Cambridge City Council, and I think. In hindsight, I think the, the surprise from a lot of other municipalities and a lot of other politicians and academics actually catapulted the idea forward in a way that it may not have been as pronounced had it passed at Cambridge Council and had we started looking at that prototype. Because I think other neighboring municipalities like Kitchener looked over and said, wait, that didn't go through. Well, we'll try it. Mm-hmm. The region of Waterloo picked up the ball as well and said, wait, that didn't pass. OK, well, we'll try it. Mm. And now we've just heard, for example, the mayor of Guelph, Cam Guthrie, uh, announcing, yep, yeah, Guelph is going to start looking at housing over parking to see if they can utilize those lands as well. So the support has started kind of radiating throughout the province and hopefully the country, all from that one uh, that one Cambridge City Council meeting where, unfortunately, other <laughs> things didn't go my way that night. 
you know, my outlook is, well, what can you do? You, you've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, ask what happened, ask how you can improve the idea going forward. And if you think it's something worth fighting for, keep pushing for it. So that's exactly what I'm doing. So what did happen, Scott? I think it uh, lost by a count of five to four for the five that voted against it. What was their rationale? Yeah. And uh, again, I'm not here to throw shade or you know, diminish <laughs> my fellow counselors at all. Like we all come to our different, um, we all have our different processes of how we come to make decisions around the council horseshoe. We had some that were concerned that it was going to affect the taxpayer. It was going to cost a lot of money when really it's the opposite, right? We already pay for the parking. We pay for the maintenance, the repairs. And in something like this, you could actually say to a nonprofit developer, look, we're going to basically give you the land for free. We'll lease it to you for $1 a year for 80 years. We retain ownership, but you make the land free. All of a sudden, the cost of that build goes down tremendously. Others were worried about losing parking spaces. And the answer to that is simple. Well, you, you just don't have to put these on a lot that has 100% use all the time. Put it on a lot that is empty for part of its existence or the majority. So Cambridge has about 30 parking lots. Some of those are heavily underutilized. The city of Toronto has over 200 parking lots. I think it's 38,000 parking spaces. Wow. Not every single one of those lots is full. Mm -hmm. So select those lots where this kind of housing would work, where it's close enough to an urban core to increase all the walkability, the safety, the economic benefits we talked about. Um, and it could work. And finally, the last thing is um, change is difficult. And this is somewhat unconventional. So people just said, you know what, this is, I don't get it. Um, and that's unfortunate because to me, the way that we progress as a society is by trying new things, innovating. If we have any issues, we troubleshoot them. We take what works and make it better. Makes it, we take what works and make it better. And we take what isn't working well and we either improve it or we throw it out the window. We tried. And so every new idea has to come from somewhere. I'm hopeful this will take root and maybe 20, 30 years from now, it'll just be a normal thing you can do with an underutilized piece of a municipal asset. Brian, we've seen in all the communities where we have local journalists, local journalists covering those communities, the homelessness crisis is everywhere now. It's uh, some cities that ten years ago you never would have seen a tent in the city, for example. We and all are those communities. It's it's becoming a, a worse and worse problem. Obviously, we see it all over the place. Um, with this idea, I, I, I wonder if it, the bigger conversation too is: are, are we moving fast enough to come up with great ideas like this? Are, are, uh, why are we? Why does it seem like nobody can come up with a solution? I guess is my big question. I mean, I would counter that actually we know what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, we know the solutions that work and the challenge is actually kind of as Scott alluded to is actually implementing and passing things that we know work. We know the idea of building non-market housing on public land is the best way to deliver genuinely affordable housing for low income and moderate income communities and especially households who are vulnerable to um, eviction and, and eventually homelessness. We know this. You speak to housing researchers. This is this is common knowledge. So, you know, one of the interesting things about this discussion is, you know, for me and, and many of my colleagues, this is not new. This is stuff that we um, we know works. What's exciting about it is the way that it's coming into the public discourse, into the mainstream conversations. Right. And, and Scott is right. You know, if Cambridge had just passed this done some research, come back with a report, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this with you today. Because it failed in Cambridge, it has galvanized this idea in many other communities. But many of these communities were already doing something similar. So I live in Kitchener. Kitchener passed a few weeks ago um, a motion to unanimously support this idea. But Kitchener was already doing this in little bits here and there. There's a great example of uh, a development on Blockline Road five minutes from an LRT station where the city 
again, same principles, a piece of land. They leased it to the YWCA, who got rapid housing financing from the government of Canada. And within the space of about two years, you go from this random piece of land that nobody knows what to do with to two buildings of supportive housing. This is a, a fantastic example. What's happening now, what I hope happens now, is that cities develop strategies, right, of trying to think of holistically and comprehensively. We have these assets. What can we do with them? The next step on top of that would actually be thinking about how do we acquire more sites, bring them into public ownership, bring them out of private ownership and do this on on an even bigger scale. But there's all sorts of things like good rent control, tenant protections, building non-market housing. These are things that housing researchers know work. The challenge isn't thinking of the ideas. The challenge is thinking of how to implement them. How do they work politically in a context where for decades we've relied on the market to deliver the bulk of our housing. We've loosened regulations around tenant protection and rent control, and we see the result. Rents rise dramatically, new supplies being built, but it doesn't necessarily meet the demand for shelter that exists in so many communities. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We all often teach our kids that uh, failure is a good thing because sometimes good things come out of failure. So this is one of those examples where if it, if it had passed, maybe <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have had the same uh, the legs. Are you hearing from people all over the country about this, Scott, or are people reaching out to you asking about it? I've definitely heard a lot of uh, people reaching out from around Ontario, mm-hmm. um, especially Waterloo region. I've heard from Hamilton, Guelph, Toronto. So the idea is definitely spreading around the province. Uh, hopefully it's something that can go nationally. And touching on something Brian said, I think if you're a member of the public, it's very hard to conceptualize a city's strategic plan. If they're going to look at redeveloping a particular road, it's hard to envision how the public transportation is going to work, the architecture, the sidewalks. But everyone knows the concrete wasteland of the city parking lot. And it's so easy to conceptualize putting three, four stories of housing above it. It clicks with people. It's easy to get. It's easy to grasp. And the amount of people that have reached out from all over the province saying, this is actually really cool. I'm looking at this parking lot I've parked in for years in a different way because I can keep my spot, put something above it. I mean, I've had landscapers reach out and say how it would save on snow removal and salts. And I've had environmentalists reach out and talk about green roofs and where to store bicycles. And it's just very exciting seeing the flow of positivity from a variety of different people from all walks of life come together to try and transform a piece of urban space in a way that not only helps cities, but provides um, desperately needed affordable housing. Um, to people that that truly need it at this point in time. It's a, it's a great conversation and one that certainly needs to uh, continue. Guys, before we let you go, uh, anything else that uh, Frisco or I didn't touch on that uh, maybe either one of you would like to bring up? You know, we've, we've been, let's call it what it is. This really is a no brainer. This really is an idea where there are really very few downsides. And uh, especially if that land is retained in public ownership, I think that's key. You know, these are municipal assets. These are assets that everybody in in the community owns as, you know, because they're owned by the city. And the key thing is keeping that in public ownership, because then you retain control over what you can do with it. And you can be ambitious. Right. Right now we get maybe five percent inclusionary zoning, right, five percent affordable in some new developments. On public land, you can be much more ambitious. You can set rules around. You know, how many three bedroom units do you want? Do we need more family size units? Do we want to have our own kind of rent control on the rentals? You can sketch out as a city what kind of housing you actually need and then put that out to proposals from the for profit developers who might be interested in this nonprofits, you know, working together 
to develop a range of housing options that just would not be possible on private land. And when you understand that, you understand there are so many more things that are possible to do that we're just not going to see otherwise. Scott, final word to you. What I would add is that a lot of people say, well, this sounds crazy. This type of building must be dangerous and it's too unconventional. And when you look around, these buildings are everywhere. We have buildings on pillars, especially around Cambridge, where there's so much bedrock by the ground river. You already have buildings built on pillars with the parking underneath them. And it's known that in construction, the deeper you go, the longer it takes, the costlier it's going to get. So there's nothing new about the actual housing on stilts or on pillars. What's new is, as Brian pointed out very well, the city retains control of the land that can set the terms and conditions of the homes that are built on top of it. And that's essential um, to remember going forth if we really want to skirt around the immense difficulties of paying market rent right now. The city has to play a stronger hand. We have the land. It's an extremely valuable urban spaces. And if we want to take our housing crisis to a new place, if we want to get to a better place, then we have to start thinking in new ways and taking different paths. And this, I think, certainly is one that's worth exploring. All right. Scott Hamilton from Cambridge City Council and uh, Dr. Brian Doucette. Canada Research Chair and Associate Prof at the University of Waterloo. Gentlemen, thanks to you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. For the latest in in-depth features and enterprise journalism from your local writers at Village Media, be sure to check out The Big Read. The Big Read. It's the full story behind the headlines. Look for The Big Read on your favourite Village Media website across Ontario. Back to wrap on another episode of Inside the Village with Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media, Derek Turner, Executive Producer at The Controls. As always, I'm Scott Sexsmith. Who would have thunk an apartment on stilts? I mean, really, when you think about it, it's genius. Yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer, like he said. It is. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I'm glad I have to give uh, credit to Doug Coxon, our editor in Cambridge, who who sent me a note last week said, hey, you know what would be a great podcast? Uh, would be talk about this issue. Yeah. Because he's covered it in Cambridge where they've said no. And now in the surrounding areas, they're saying, yes, let's give it a shot. Let's look into this issue. And now in Guelph, the mayor's uh, behind the idea. Uh, so it was it was a great conversation, something a lot of our – I guarantee a lot of our viewers will have never heard of this. No, no, certainly. But uh, let us know if you have or if you haven't and what your thoughts are. Uh, you can reach out uh, anytime, 24-7, uh, to either of us, ITV at villagemedia.ca. Okay, uh, we're going to pack up and head out. We will be back next week. Uh, thanks for watching. You can catch all back uh, episodes of the uh, program wherever you get your favorite podcasts and, of course, across the Village Media Network. For Derek Turner, Michael Friscalanti, I'm Scott Sexsmith. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next Wednesday. You've been listening to Inside the Village. Fresco and Scott's wardrobe provided in part by Moore's Sault Ste. Marie.